Guys, I do need you to do me a favor really quick as we're getting started here. Take out a, a piece of paper or flip your booklet over um, to the back and write something down for me. So write this down. 717-368-2359. The week of a retreat, if that number calls you, do not answer. Okay? Let it go to voicemail. You'll see him on Friday. It's just play it off. It's fine. Okay? Don't answer that. Don't answer that phone call. Tuesday, I was minding my own business. I had been on vacation the week before, and I see Chris call me, and I thought, oh, you know, he's probably just checking in, seeing how was my vacation? Did I enjoy the sunshine? Welcome back to the cold weather. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, need you to give a talk on that. Uh, this weekend. All right, great. So for all the voluntolding that Dan and I have done uh, leading up to this weekend, and we're very grateful for the guys that have stepped up to do that, uh, the good news is that every once in a while we get voluntold as well. So here I am, and uh, all joking aside, he didn't have to twist my arm too hard. This is a topic that I enjoy talking about, and I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So just a couple things that I wanted to mention before I jump in here, um, the first of which being kind of probably similar to what some of the other guys have shared, just because I'm up here talking about this topic does not mean that I have it figured out. It does not mean that I don't struggle with this. So I am speaking to myself just as much as I'm sharing that with any of you guys. Um, as I was, as I originally wrote this talk down, I probably had it geared a little bit more towards maybe some of the big things in life, um, the bigger moments, maybe the things that we really question God about, um, tragedy, for example. Uh, as I've thought about it more and as I've you know, kind of revisited some of these things, it's been a good reminder that these, these truths that I'm going to talk about, they're going to apply to the small things as well. Um, arguably, they're going to probably have a little bit more impact on us if we do think about them in the small things um, as much as the big things. But it is easy to think about them maybe in the, in the bigger events of life, but they're going to apply to the day-to-day -day just as much. And then the third thing that I'll mention is just that they're, uh, they're not going to be the easiest truths to swallow at times, right? Um, they're definitely going to challenge us. They may rub us the wrong way a little bit. Um, and as we've talked about with what we read about in Scripture, a lot of times those things are, when we come up against them, it's an opportunity for us to, to submit to God, to you know, trust in His Word. Um, so as, as I'm talking through some of these, you know, it's okay if it, if it rubs you the wrong way a little bit or if it challenges you. Uh, my, my prayer for us is that as we look at some of these topics, we'll look at them through the lens of the Bible and that uh, as we dig into them, that they'll give us the peace that God desires for us. So um, the talk that I have is called The Three-Legged Stool. We've got a lot of construction guys here, and really I just want to go back to basics and teach you guys how to build, you know, something very, very, very simple. So, um, you know, get your notepads out and we'll, we'll go through everything. I'll have you ready to go. Um, but the reason for uh, the title of it, and it's not original, I, I stole it from somebody else, I don't remember who, but the reason for the title of it is, uh, you know, think about a, a stool, right? And a lot of us are from Lancaster. We might be familiar with, with farmers, things like that. Have you ever seen a picture of, of that guy who's sitting there milking cows and he's got like a one-legged stool and somehow he's balancing himself on it and, and using it and somehow that works for them? I, I don't know how. It doesn't look like it'd be very practical, but you can have a one-legged stool, right, if you know what you're doing. It's not going to stand on its own, and a two-legged stool is not going to stand on its own either, right? You can set it up, but it's just going to, it's going to fall over. You need to have those three legs for it to actually be able to, to stand on its own. And so when we think about a, a three-legged stool kind of in the context of God's sovereignty, what I'm talking about and what I'm referring to is these three truths, they're going to be 100% applicable and relevant on their own, but when we put them together, like I said, in the context of God's sovereignty, they're going to tell us a lot about uh, his sovereignty, and really give us a glimpse of that in a powerful way. Shane alluded to them yesterday. If you want to write these three truths down, feel free to do so. Um, they are that God is good, that God is in control, and that God has my best interests in mind. God is good, God is in control, God has my best interests in mind. So what I'd like to do, guys, is discuss each one of these kind of in and of themselves and then uh, discuss a little bit about how we react to that and how we can apply those truths to our lives. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in here. Father, I'm, I am 
thankful for this weekend. I'm thankful for this group of guys that have made it to Sunday morning. Lord, thank you just for the, um, for the fellowship that we've had, for the teaching that we've had, for the encouragement that this has been to me. Lord, I am, um, I'm humbled by the guys that are here, and I, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to, to talk for a little bit this morning, Lord. So I pray that it would be your words and not mine. I pray that you would speak through me, and uh, we just give this time to you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to jump into uh, the first truth, God is good. Um, and as I jump through this, this uh, particular truth, um, there are tons of verses in Scripture that are going to talk about God's goodness. Honestly, we could probably spend our entire time and, and more than that just going through some of these verses um, and really digging into them. They are filled, um, the Bible is filled with verses that reference God's goodness. We're going to look at just a few of them here, and I'm going to go kind of quickly between these references. Don't feel like you need to turn to them, but if you want to jot them down and come back to them later, feel free to do so. Um, and some of these verses are going to be about God's character in, in terms of his goodness, and then some of them are going to be about kind of his actions as a result of his goodness as well. So a couple of verses that talk to the goodness of God's character. Psalms 107.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And we'll see that if you look through the Psalms, you're going to see that term steadfast love pop up a lot. Um, goodness is another way of, of saying that. Um, but you'll see that a lot, especially as, as David's talking through the Psalms there. So, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 33, 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 145, 7-9 says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So there we see, a, you know, even just more of, of God's character. It talks about abundant goodness. It talks about the Lord being good to all. And um, like I said, we could spend a lot of time just reading through verses that talk about God's goodness. There's no shortage of them. Those are a few that just talk about the character of God's goodness. And then if we look at a few more that kind of get into the action of his goodness as well. Genesis 131 is one of those. So this would be the last verse of the first chapter of the Bible. It's the end of the creation account. Genesis 131 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And just an observation on that too. Um, I'm sure we could spend more time on this. Several times throughout the creation account, God gets to the end of, of what he's created, or he gets to the end of a day, and he says, and it was good, and it was good. And he gets to the end of, of all of it, and this is after he's made man in his own image, and he says it was very good. So just kind of a reminder to us as well of how God looks upon us um, and, the, and the joy that he has in, in his creation. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are, you are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. So here we see a little bit of his character and his actions as well, and then a little bit of a call to action for, for the writer as well, or, or for us as we're reading it. Recognizing God's goodness in terms of who he is, seeing the good that he does, and then kind of spurning us to action that because of that, Lord, teach me your goodness, teach me your ways that I can implement them in my life as well. And then James 1.17 is a verse from the New Testament. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And an encouragement there, it was referenced, you know, earlier uh, this weekend, just that, you know, we serve a God that, that doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those good gifts and those perfect gifts, they come from above, and, and they come from a God who loves us and, and who does not change. And uh, I hope we can take a lot of hope and peace in that. So I want to look at a few more verses that talk about God's goodness, but a small difference between some of these and some of the ones that we just read um, would be an application that sometimes in regards to God's goodness, he's going to ask us to have faith and maybe believe before we actually get to see what his goodness looks like, right? We kind of need to commit to that before we see it. So flip over to Lamentations 3 in the Old Testament. Lamentations 3, we're going to look at verses 21 to 25. So a little bit about the book of Lamentations. Uh, most likely the author of Lamentations was the prophet Jeremiah. And it is literally just that. It is a, a book of, of Lamentations, right? So a, la a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. 
So imagine if that was the name of the book, A Passionate Expression of, of Grief and Sorrow. Or uh, imagine if, if you wrote a book and instead of calling it Lamentations, you called it A Passionate Expression of Grief or Sorrow. That would either sell a lot of books or it wouldn't sell any books. I'm not sure, but for better or for worse, the name of this book is called Lamentations. So in the middle of this book, this compilation of passionate expressions of grief and sorrow, Jeremiah turns to hope and he turns to God's goodness. And starting in verse 21, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will wait in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And so we see Jeremiah in the middle of his lamenting, in the middle of his grief and sorrow, and he understands what his, what his hope is and where his hope needs to be directed. And in spite of what's going on around him, he recognizes the goodness of God and understands that sometimes it means that he's going to have to wait and see what God is doing as well. Uh, you don't need to turn to these, but just a couple references to write down to follow up on that. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then Psalm 31, 19, O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So a couple observations on some of these verses, guys. Um, you know, some of these verses are going to take things a little bit further and say things like, the Lord is good to those who wait for him and seek him that he knows those who take refuge in him, that he is abounding to those who call on him, right? So all of those statements that are part of those verses kind of make it sound like it's at a time where things maybe aren't going so well, right? Wait from the first passage suggests maybe not having what we desire. Taking refuge could indicate persecution, feeling beat up by the world or feeling beat up by our circumstances. Call on him. Seems to be at a time maybe when supernatural help is needed. And yet, you know, God tells us that in those times, his goodness is still there as well. But we know that sometimes that goodness may be veiled. It may require us to have faith, to step out in faith, to seek him, to call on him, to wait on him as he reveals that goodness to us, and really to believe that his goodness is there, even in spite of the evidence or even in spite of what we're seeing in our circumstances around us. And it's a truth too, guys, that sometimes what we perceive to be a bad thing actually ends up being the best thing for us. We just don't, we don't realize it at the time, right? So I'm going to give you an example of that. And uh, I'd like to think that I know my audience a little bit here. We're in Pennsylvania, and I know that I have at least uh, one uh, Eagles fan over here. So let's rewind a little bit. It's Super Bowl week this week, right? Somehow the Bengals are in the Super Bowl, which I don't understand, but I hope it's a good game. But let's rewind a little bit to the 2017-2018 season, I believe, right? So, Brian, I feel like you summarized it pretty well, not only with you know, your personality, but maybe how that manifests itself as, a, as an Eagles fan. We, we know that something's going to go wrong at some point, right? Like, even when everything is going great, we know that, that trouble is coming and, and that it's always too good to be true, right? So the 2017-2018 season, the Eagles are cruising, right? Carson Wentz is having an MVP caliber season. Everything's going great. We're going into Los Angeles to play the Rams, who are having a great season as well. Great showdown, you know, going to be an awesome test to see are the Eagles as good as, as what they think that they are. And, uh, you know, we come out of that game with a victory. We win in Los Angeles. We beat the Rams. But as we remember, that comes with a cost, right? And Carson Wentz tears his ACL, messes up some other things in his knee. And, and uh, as we know, we knew, we knew at that point he wasn't going to finish out the season. And I can only imagine what talk radio in Philadelphia was on that Monday. It was not, uh, it was not happy, right? There is not a single person in the city of Philadelphia that thought, yes, this is the break we needed. Now we're, now we're going to go and we're going to finally win our first Super Bowl. Nick Foles comes riding in on his white horse. And uh, I think there were two games left in the season. We limped to the finish line somehow. I think we miraculously beat the Giants to secure home field advantage and to secure the number one seed. But again, at this point, no, uh, I was going to say no logical Philadelphia fan 
but I don't think that that phrase actually works together. Um, no, uh, no Philadelphia fan at that point is saying like, yes, I believe, this is good. What just happened to me is, is good, right? So we have a first round bye. We play the Falcons in the, in the divisional round. And somehow we, we come up with a goal line stand against them at the end of the game and we win. Don't know how, but we win. Go to the next week to the conference championship play the Vikings. Vikings come out, score on like their first drive of the game. And I'm thinking, I'm watching it with my in-laws and I'm thinking, all right, finally, this is it. Like, okay, just, you know, kill me quickly, right? We, kn we knew it was going to happen. Just, just make it painless, right? But we get a pick six, you know, something turns around and we end up just running all over the Vikings. And now like somehow beyond all, all imagination, we're going to the Super Bowl and who's waiting there for us, right? Tom Brady. We get to exact our revenge against the guy who beat us 12 or 13 years before that. If you're going to play in the Super Bowl, right, like who do you want to play? You want to play against the best. And against all odds, and I'd like to say that I'm objective when I say this, but probably one of the more entertaining Super Bowls that we can remember, the Eagles win. First Super Bowl championship in team history, and uh, the city's set on fire, and, and we're, all, we're all excited. So literally set on fire, probably. So, you know, I, I look back on that and I, and I think about the events leading up to it. And I, I can say, I can't say for certainty, guys, that had Carson Wentz not gotten injured, that we wouldn't have won the Super Bowl. That may have happened, right? But I can tell you for darn sure that with Nick Foles as the quarterback, we did win the Super Bowl. And that Monday after the game against the Rams, what seemed like the worst thing in the world actually ended up being a blessing for, for Philadelphia and for Brian as well. <laughs> Mainly, mainly Brian, <laughs> mainly Brian. So that's a little bit of a light example, guys, right? But it's, it's a reminder that, you know, especially as we look back and especially as we, re we reflect on things in our lives, sometimes the thing that seems like the worst possible thing to us can really shape things and we can see, we can see God's goodness through that. So um, question for us is what does experiencing God's goodness do to us? Like how does, how does that move us to action as well? And it's an important thing for us to remember that you know, God's goodness is going to be at work in our lives, whether or not we realize it, right? It's going to be there. I mentioned before that, you know, sometimes it's veiled. But when we intentionally look for it or when we choose to recognize God's goodness in our life, especially in spite of our circumstances, that can really lead us to change. And one of the things it can do is lead us to repentance. And that's talked about in Romans 2.4. You don't need to turn there, but you can jot down that reference. So the word that's used there in terms of uh, repentance, the Greek word used there is metanoia. And one of the words that used, that's used in that definition is reversal. So if we think about reversal, taken literally, God's goodness in the context of repentance should literally cause us to reverse our course, right? To turn around 180 degrees. So as we think about his goodness in our life, that should cause us, cause us to change. That should cause us to go and perhaps the opposite direction that we've been moving in. It can and it should increase our faith exponentially. When we think back, when we think upon and remember his goodness to us in past situations, the way that he has demonstrated his goodness to us, that can and should help us to have faith in future trials as well. Kind of put some, uh, some arrows in the quiver as we think about the future things that we're going to go through. And that can apply, guys, to like examples in our own lives as we think about things that we've gone through, but it can also be a great way for us to relate to other men as well, not only with sharing our experiences with them, but, you know, let's say we're going into uncharted waters and we're experiencing, you know, maybe a diagnosis or a job loss or, you know, the loss of someone close to us. And this is totally uncharted waters for us. Leaning on other men beside us who have gone through that, you know, kind of asking them for their help, for, for prayer, for counsel, we can really use each other in that way as well and increase our faith through those, those situations. And it should manifest itself in our relationships with others through patience, through forgiveness, through generosity. The goodness that God has demonstrated to us repeatedly should really cause that list to go on and on. And, it, you know, there's, there are a lot of ways, guys, that God has demonstrated his goodness to us, but we know what the greatest act of his goodness was to us, right? And when we think about that in the context of maybe a, a myth that we hear, probably one of the questions that we hear a lot is, you know, why do, why do uh, bad things happen to good people, right? And that's kind of something that we wrestle with. And somehow we, 
we tell ourselves that like we're the good people, right? And that we don't deserve for anything bad to ever happen to ourselves, right? So it's kind of this common, common statement, but it's based on this assumption or, and probably an incorrect assumption that our good deeds outweigh our bad. And we know that that's not true, right? We've talked about that this weekend. So when we think about the reality that we are inherently sinners deserving of death, eternal death, right? And that sin has been part of our DNA since the beginning of time, when we know that, you know, Romans tells us that no one is righteous, that the wages of our sin is death, and that that death that we're talking about is not just, you know, dying and, and dying a temporal death, like eternal death, eternal separation. The wages of our sin is eternal separation from God. And then we think about his goodness as a result of that, right? Guys, that puts us in the right posture to think about ourselves, to think about the sinners that we are, and to really recognize that anything from God and everything that he has done for us, but mainly Jesus' death on the cross for us and allowing us to spend eternity in heaven with him is the greatest act of goodness that he can give us, right? So we know verses that talk about that. John 3, 16, um, Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us that it is, it is through grace and through faith in God that we are saved. It's not by our works. It's not by anything that we've done. It is only by the grace of God that we can have eternal life. So just a reminder to us that what we deserve is eternal death, but God and his goodness, what he gives to us is eternal life. And I think that that's something important for us to remember as we think about or as we sometimes question God's goodness. Uh, any questions on goodness before I move on to the second one? So the second truth that we'll talk about is that God is in control. So a question for us to consider is that are we in control or is God in control? And I obviously asked that a little bit sarcastically because we know the answer to that, right? So we know the answer to it, but you know, do, the, do our actions support our beliefs, right? And I, again, I'm, I'm just as guilty of this as, as anyone. I like to control things as well. So here's a list of some things that we try to control and, and then maybe you know, how, what the Bible tells us in terms of, of how that works as well. Um, think about our marriages, right? Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so, guys, it's easy for me to, you know, want to control my wife, to want to have Heather, you know, serve my every need or be at my beck and call or, you know, just be, you know, be there for me at all times, right? I want to control that marriage, right? But God tells us to take on a, a different posture as well. He tells us to love our, our wives sacrificially, to love them as, as Christ loved the church and be willing to basically give up our, our own wants and desires and needs in exchange for hers and to look at her from a servant mentality. Another thing is, is finance, finances or uh, career success, right? We have a lot of ambitious people in this room. Um, and as we've talked about in some of the workshops, there's nothing wrong with motivation, but we tend to, I tend to want to hold on to the, you know, the career success or the finances or that next deal or how many transactions I do with pretty tight fists and say, you know, God, I'm in control of that, right? You know, I, I work in a, a commission-based world, so it's easy for me to say that, you know, the more calls I make, the more people I talk to. The more people I talk to, the more listings I get, the more listings I get, the more houses I sell, the more houses I sell, the more money I make, the more money I make, the happier I am, right? It's an easy progression to make from a, from a worldly perspective, but we know that God's in control of, of our career success, of our finances, and that we need to, to turn that over to him. 1 Corinthians 4.7 reminds us, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We've talked about why go to work a couple times this weekend. I would encourage you guys, pick up a, a copy of that book in the back. Um, if they're all gone, go to the website and buy some as well. Um, but it's just a really challenging way for us to remember, you know, why do we go to work? You know, who is my true provider? Am I in control of my finances and my success? Or is God in control of that? And is he merely using me where I am? So I'm, I'm sure that's a big one for us as guys. Schedules is a big one. I know that we're all, we're all busy. We all have a lot going on, and it's easy to plan out our schedules and say that we're in control of every minute of every day and that we can you know, be in, in control and, and uh, you know, run things the way that we want to. 
But James reminds us, James 4, verses 13 to 15 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's a reminder that you know, we are, we're not in control of, of our calendars. We want to look ahead to tomorrow, but um, as Jesus reminds us in Matthew, sufficient for the day is, is its own trouble. We need to let that up to God. Possessions are the last one that I wrote down here. And as, as we know, this is not a full list. There's plenty more that we could talk about. But possessions is another one that, you know, again, it's, it's a challenge for me. I, I want to be tight-fisted with what I have. I want to be in control of those things. And uh, Jesus tells us differently. In, in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So just a couple things, guys, that we, we certainly want to control, and we maybe trick ourselves into thinking that we can actually control, and in reality we know. We know that's not the case, and Scripture tells us differently. So a, a few other verses here to look through that talk about God's control. Uh, this one has been brought up a couple of times throughout the weekend. Isaiah 45, 6-7 says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So really from the, from the beginning to the end, from the east to the west, we know that, that God is in control and that everything that we see is, is a result of, of his hand, right? Matthew 10 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is probably one of those verses that we have all read a hundred times. But like when we really stop and, and read that, right? We think about the things that we worry about. We think about the things that we want to control and Jesus is telling us here that like something as, as meaningless as a sparrow, right? When they fall to the ground, you know, God does not know about that. And God is not, not a part of that, right? He is involved in that. And if he's involved in that, he is involved in our lives as well. We are more value than many sparrows, right? And so just a reminder for us to, to have that peace because of God's control. The next one I want to look at is Psalm 139. And uh, as I was looking at this chapter to decide what verses I wanted to use, and this, is, this has always been a special uh, chapter to me, I think back in kindergarten, it was like one of the first verses that, that we were supposed to memorize. Um, but I started looking at Psalm 139 and, and realized I couldn't really pick out one or two verses. Um, so bear with me, I'm going to read the whole chapter. But I, uh, I always take great encouragement in this chapter. If you guys want to flip there and follow along, feel free to do so. Psalm 139. says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed me, when, yet, when as yet there was none of them. I remember being in, in kindergarten and coming home and having to memorize 
uh, that whole chapter. Kidding, not the whole chapter. It was a very intense school that we went to. Um, I think it was just, it was the last couple there. And I remember saying to my mom, so is it like God has this big calendar of our lives written out and he knows, you know, each day and and what's going to happen? And uh, I don't know why that sticks with me, but those verses always give me uh, tremendous peace knowing that I, I can't get away from God, that he is, he is always going to be there with me and that he knew me long before I was, you know, being, uh, being knit together, right? And, uh, and he loves us. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So if God created something, certainly he's in control of it. And we see here that as we're kind of attempting to understand his control and his creation, that faith is going to play a role in that as well. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And then uh, Acts 17, 24 to 27. This says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So again, just a reminder of, of God's control from the beginning, not only in, in creation, um, but as creation plays out as well. So those are a lot of verses on God's control. Um, and certainly we could talk about a lot more. But as we read some of those verses, the question is, how do we respond to that? Right? We read those and, and we're probably going to respond in different ways. And I would say that we can avoid it. We can reject it. We can say that it doesn't apply to us, but that doesn't make God's control in our lives any less valid, right? It's a little bit kind of like the truth that Matt talked about last night, that there are certain truths that are written into the, into the universe, right? I can say that gravity is not going to apply to me, right? I can say, eh, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in that. I, I'm going to choose to reject that. But guys, if I take an airplane up and I go skydiving without a parachute, like it's not going to end well right? That's a truth that's written into the universe, and I can't do anything about that, right? So instead of rejecting that, I would encourage you guys not to reject gravity. I do think that will end up badly for us. But instead of rejecting the truth of God's control, I would suggest to you and I would encourage you to embrace it and to experience God's peace. I'm going to go to a a passage that we've used a couple times throughout the weekend. You know, I'm like sitting at my chair throughout the weekend and guys are like using all these verses and I'm like, man, I have all these in mind as well. They're stealing everything that I was going to talk about, but it is an encouragement too, just kind of how the, you know, the Bible just works together and and the best, uh, as we're, as we're studying the Bible, the best answer for, for scripture is scripture. And so many of these verses are encouragement. So this is in Philippians four. I just have verses six and seven to talk about. Eight obviously is, is a wonderful follow-up to six and seven, but Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And guys, this may be a little bit more of a, an individual application for me, but I would encourage you, you know, we've given you a couple of references this weekend to commit to memory. I would encourage you to commit the, these two verses to memory. I cannot tell you how many times these verses have been a re- just a, a tremendous blessing for me to, to lean on in the small things and in the big things, right? To know that I can present my request to God and that it's going to give me peace, right? And I think that one of the most encouraging thing about these verses is you read verse six and it says, you know, don't be anxious about anything. Present your request to God with thanksgiving, And you're like, okay, great. I bet verse seven is going to say, and God will answer your prayers, right? That seems like it'd be the logical transition. But no, it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Chris talked about this a little bit, I think, on Friday night or or maybe it was Saturday. But God's peace, you know, the world's peace is the absence of conflict. God's peace is peace in the midst of conflict. And it's that type of attitude that if we can display that to our families, to our coworkers, 
to the people around us. What an amazing testimony that that is to them. But obviously, you know, what a blessing it is to us as well to feel to feel God's peace through that. Matthew eleven twenty eight to thirty says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle." And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I like that that passage. I heard somebody talk about it recently. You know what a what a yoke was in, in a context of you know two oxen, um, you know pulling something, and a and a younger one and an older one, um, and and kind of how that all works together. And I just love the the imagery of like. You know, we've talked a couple times about these burdens that we feel and these these weights that are lifted off of our shoulders. And I, I like those verses because it just it reminds us that we don't need to carry those things on our own. We can turn those over to to Jesus, and uh, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. John sixteen thirty three says, "I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." That tribulation is going to be a result of our circumstances, which, as we know, are going to be changing daily. But the peace that we can experience through recognizing God's control in our life, that's the peace that does not change. And, uh, you know, I'm sure for all of us at different times, maybe even now, we've had times where we just feel like that weight of the world is upon us. We, we're anxious about the future. There's unknowns in front of us. We don't know how things are going to play out, and we feel like we're totally out of our control. Things are totally out of our control. Sometimes that gives us more worry and anxiety to, to think about it from that perspective. But verses like these certainly remind us that God is in control of our lives, that we don't need to worry about tomorrow because, as Jesus says in Matthew 6:34, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so as I think about God's control in my life, um, a couple years ago I was, I feel like I was, uh, really blessed to be given a, a physical, tangible, uh, just like visual reminder of, uh, of God's control. And it's something that I can always go back to when, when I need to think about that. Um, I'm a very visual person. I'd love to see like a, a slideshow of like all these visual things that I remember from even when I was really young. Um, but this is certainly one that it, it's burned into my, into my brain and it's a good reminder. So um, we have three kids uh, our oldest is turning four in like a week and a half. Um, and when she was, she was born uh, about two months, uh, when she was about two months old, uh, my wife, Heather, was, uh, was changing her diaper and just noticed that like on her abdomen, she had kind of a, a bump there and, and um, took her to the doctor, you know, called the doctor, talked about it, found out it was a hernia. Um, doctors said <clears throat> hernias are pretty common for kids. Um, you know, no big deal, should be fine, keep an eye on it. That night, uh, the doctor called us, and uh, she was just thinking about things a little bit more. She said, hey, you know, with that being, you know, so close to her uterus, I, I just can't get out of my mind. Like, I, I'd like you guys to go to an ultrasound and just make sure that, you know, nothing is, is too concerning there. So next day, we go get an ultrasound, a couple days in succession. Anyway, by Monday morning of that following week, at like five or six in the morning, we're driving up to Hershey Medical Center for her to, to get this hernia taken care of, which actually ended up being a double hernia by the time that, that it was all said and done. But I remember, um, I remember driving up there with Heather and with Peyton sleeping in the back seat, and uh, I remember just feeling at peace. Um, that would have been the first time that you know, surgery or, or something like, like that would have happened to me. Um, and as I was telling Joel last night, it was also literally the first month that we had switched from traditional insurance to uh, like a Christian health sharing account. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm like, man, I really hope this stuff works because this is going to be really expensive if it doesn't. Um, and it did. They questioned me, uh, but it did all work out. Uh, so there was a lot of faith at place there. But I remember driving up there and just feeling, feeling at peace about it. And if you guys have ever had surgery or, or been involved with somebody you know, who's having surgery, um, they take you into the room, they do all their, you know, pre-op, they tell you what they're going to do, they mark everything up, and uh, it's kind of like the calm before the storm, so to speak. And then um, you, you start walking, and uh, I remember, like, holding her. And then you get to the point where, like, you can't go any further, and you've got to, you know, give her over to them. And I remember laying her down on that bed as they rolled her through those doors. And I just thought, man, I am so out of control. 
Is this like, so like I have nothing to do with this. Right. And I just have that in my mind and I'll always have it there. I have this image of, of, you know, her just rolling down the hallway, little two month old Peyton. And, um, just a reminder that, you know, I am not in control of her life. I am not in control of my life, but God is, and I can, I can take hope in that and I can find peace in that. And, uh, you know, she's almost four now. I know that (laughs) there are going to be plenty of other times where I feel like I'm figuratively, you know, putting her down on, on that bed and reminding myself that I'm, I'm not in control, but I'm thankful for that example. I'm thankful for that image that, that God gave me just to remind me daily the things that we love are, are not actually within our control, right? They belong to God and we can take, take peace in that. So um, before I move on to the third truth, any questions on any of those verses, anything that I said with regards to God's control in our lives? Alrighty. So the third one is that God has my best interest in mind. And guys, if we understand this final truth, I think that it can really bring together like everything that we're talking about, right? We can see beyond our circumstances. We can trust in God's goodness. We can see his control in our lives. So turn with me to Genesis 37. We're going to take a look at the life of Joseph. Genesis 37. Talk about a roller coaster of a life that Joseph lived. So we're going to kind of take a quick run through uh, some of the experiences that Joseph had here. We'll hit him pretty quickly. But verse 3, so he's singled out by his father as the one who was the most loved amongst his brothers. So he gets a nice target on his back, right? We all appreciate that. Like, I'm glad that, yeah, please, as my, like, for my parents, please tell me I'm the favorite so that all my siblings can hate me for it. Like, thank you. Thank you very much for that. So, you know, surprisingly, in verse 18, his brothers get jealous of him. Didn't see that one coming. So maybe the part that we didn't see coming, they decide to kill him, right? The logical solution, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him, right? They change their mind. They sell him to a group of foreigners that are traveling through. And in verse 36 of chapter 37, we see that he ends up working for one of Pharaoh's officers, begins to experience success, right? We jump ahead a couple chapters to Genesis 39, Joseph is falsely accused of rape and he's thrown into prison. So from prison, he correctly interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And Ben, I'm glad that you referenced them earlier because you read through that and you're like, this sounds like a nursery rhyme, like the cupbearer, the, the baker, the candlestick maker, right? Like, what are, we, what are we actually reading about? But Ben pointed this out, like they were super important positions. Did you talk about the cupbearer, right? So he tested the drink, right? The baker was food, right? So these are guys that are like protecting Pharaoh and making sure that he doesn't die. So in, in light of the fact that it sounds like a joke, they're really important positions. They needed to be trustworthy, right? So he interprets the dreams correctly of these guys, but he receives zero recognition for it. This is from prison. So two years later, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret, but this cupbearer, so the baker gets killed, the cupbearer lives to tell about it, and two years later, as Pharaoh's having this dream, the cupbearer goes, oh, that's right. There was this guy in prison that interpreted my dream. Maybe we should call him. Maybe we should check in with him and see if he can help us out again. So, of course, he correctly interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's made the number two man in all of Egypt, right? And so through all of this, through the roller coaster of his life, he's able to provide for his brothers and his family. There's a famine in their homeland. He's able to bring them to Egypt to live there. And ultimately, as we know, that brings a nation of of Israel to Egypt so that 400 years later they could have the exodus and God can continue to to demonstrate his faithfulness through miracles and the part in the Red Sea. So they come to Egypt, right? His brothers get there. And this is at the end of the story. And Joseph's father, Jacob, has died at this point. And I'm sure that, you know, Joseph's brothers, they get there and and they think that, you know, now that, that dad is dead, Joseph is finally going to have his, his revenge on us, right? He's been waiting for this opportunity for so long. Here it comes. But what does Joseph say instead? In, in uh, Genesis 50, 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
And so as we look at the story of Joseph, where it would appear that a lot of times God did not have his best interests in mind, and certainly he went through his share of, of trial and tribulation, he was a man that understood that even in spite of his trials, God was at work. And we see that with how he responds in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, right? So there's a, there's a quote that I love um, that I think really gives a lot of context to circumstances and, and how we look at them. And it's from Charles Swindoll. It says that I'm convinced that life is 10% circumstances and 90% how I react to them. And I think that words like that can really change our perspective in a lot of different ways. When we decide or when we determine what kind of attitude we're going to have in the midst of our circumstances, we're going to really start to shift our mindset and shift our attitude from the temporal to the eternal. A reminder for us is that if we look at our, if we look at God through the lens of our circumstances, it's going to be temporal. It's going to be short-sighted. It's not going to work out. But if we look at our, our circumstances through God's lens, if we ask him to show us how he's working, even when we don't understand it, and I would argue especially when we don't understand it, that's going to come from having an eternal mindset. So that's going to move us from focusing on the result and towards focusing on Christ instead. As we focus on the result, or as we focus on the temporal, we are going to be disappointed, right? If we put our hope in temporal things, we will be disappointed. It's just a matter of when that happens. But if we put our focus on Christ, if we focus on the eternal, we can see our circumstances completely different. And it's important for us to remember verses like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And guys, we know that that is not a natural way for us to think, right? It's not how we're wired as men or as, as human beings. But when we ask God to remove our own original thoughts and replace it instead with a godly way of thinking, we're going to start to look at our, our circumstances completely different. Um, turn with me to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That eternal mindset that we're talking about is going to require transformation, and these verses are going to talk about that. If you still have capacity for Bible memory, I would write these down as ones to commit to memory as well. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, discern, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that, that uh, conformed to this world is what's going to happen if we're not intentional. If we just kind of roll along and, and coast, we're going to be conformed to the world that transformation that happens by the renewing of our mind, that's going to be God removing our thoughts and replacing them with his thoughts. And that's going to really help us as we think about that eternal mindset. First, first uh, Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So talking about part of God's universal purpose, the will of God for Christ Jesus and you. So as we think about God's universal purpose for the believer, what he asks us to participate in, and as we act on that, as we're faithful to his purposes and his plans for our lives, as we give thanks in, in all circumstances, as we rejoice and as we pray without, without season, as we, as we do those things that are countercultural and maybe don't make sense to us, I, I really believe, guys, and I would encourage you to, to act in faith that we're going to gain a, a more clear vision of God's unique will or unique purpose for our lives. So as we commit to those things, he's going to continue to reveal himself to us even as we commit to them before we even realize it. So those are the three truths that I wanted to go through. And the question is then, where, do, where does that leave us, right? As we think about the fact that God is good, that God is in control, and that God has my best interest in mind, where does that leave us? 
And I would suggest to you guys, and I, I know what I said at the beginning about, you know, this applies to the small and to the big. I'm going to think about it from the perspective of the big, you know, call it the tragic, right? The things that, that uh, happen that we really don't, don't understand. I'm going to suggest to us that there are basically two types of people here. It's going to be the people that have experienced tremendous loss or pain uh, in their lives or maybe in the lives of others. And then there are going to be the people that maybe haven't experienced those types of things, right? So first to those that have experienced that type of hurt and loss and maybe had that questioning um, with God's control or God's goodness or, or God having our best interest. So the caveat to you guys that maybe have experienced those things, I, it's hard for me to, to identify or to, to know exactly how you feel or what you've been through. That has not been my experience in life. Um, from a loss perspective, there just hasn't been a whole lot that I have had to deal with in terms of loss. My grandfathers have passed away of, of old age. Uh, a couple years ago, I thought I was losing my job. Um, but aside from you know things like that, like I haven't had those times where I've like had to shake my fists at God and, and say, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? I don't I don't understand it. And I'll fully admit that maybe that doesn't give me the license to to talk about some of these things or, or to speak to to the guys that have had those types of experiences. But the Bible certainly has a lot to say about that. And so we're going to look at some of those verses too. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So my version says steadfastness there. Others are going to say patience. But that word um, in, in the Greek is defined as, excuse me, cheerful or hopeful endurance or constancy. I think Winston mentioned that a little bit yesterday. That word is used in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1 as well. But I love that definition, like hopeful endurance, right? Endurance means that we're having to push through, right? It's not easy, but we have a hope that's part of that as well. And we have that cheerful and that hopeful endurance that we can, that we can have. And it's through you know, obviously through Jesus and through what he's done for us. That hope is going to play a pivotal, a pivotal role in enduring those trials. Um, and truthfully, those trials are really going to indicate and expose to us where have we placed our hope. What are we hoping in, right? That's going to reveal that. If it's in the temporal, we're going to waver because those things are going to disappoint us. They're going to pass away. It's only through placing our hope in Christ that we're not going to, we're not going to be disappointed, right? That's going to begin to increase godly qualities in us that are going to enhance our faith for the next time that those trials are going to come up as well, right? And it's going to serve as a testimony to people around us, both believers, you know, brothers like the guys here this weekend, but also to unbelievers as well. And with that eternal mindset, you know, those are the things that really we should be concerned about, right? Not temporal uh, comfort or pain aversion. I don't like pain. I like, to st I like to stay away from it. I'm not saying that we should seek it out. Um, but James also says here that, you know, when that pain or those trials come along, consider it joy. Consider it joy because God can use that. In that same chapter in James chapter 1, later in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God had promised to those who love him. And I hope, guys, that that's our goal when trials come our way. Turn with me to another passage that talks about this, Romans 5. Romans 5, we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. This is going to be another passage that talks about how we can grow through our trials. We're actually going to start back at the end of chapter 4 as an example of Abraham's faith in the midst of trial. So picking up in verse 18 of chapter 4, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what was promised. And so guys, we see here that the evidence was stacked against Abraham and Sarah, right? He's almost 100 years old. 
she's barren, right? That doesn't sound like a good recipe for success, right? And yet, in spite of that, nothing makes him waver. Although I'm sure that, you know, if he would have told anybody that Sarah was having a baby, they would have looked at him like he was crazy. But he grew strong in his faith. And I love, as it says there, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So it's this idea that his faith was active in the midst of uncertainty, right? As he gave glory to God, he grew strong in his faith. And, you know, faith through trials, guys, is like compound interest, right? It just grows on itself. It grows on itself, right? So jumping ahead a couple of verses to the, the ones I had you guys turn to, Romans 5, 3 to 5. It starts by saying more than that. And more than that is going to refer to the peace that we have with God through Jesus, which seems like a pretty awesome thing to have. Like, I don't know what more than that is going to be, but he's going to tell us here. So more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been, who has been given to us. And guys, this isn't going to be necessarily an overnight occurrence for us. It is going to take time, right, for that to, to grow. Um, it's going to take time for, our, for us to put our faith into action and for that to build upon itself, right? But again, it is going to lead us to hope. And if, if we're going to endure the trials in our lives, the things that God's going to put in our lives that we're going to have to endure, we're going to have to drive our stake into the ground, of God's faithfulness to us. We have to make that decision before, before those things even happen to us, right? Just as Abraham's faith didn't waver in the midst of questioning, it didn't waver in the midst of trial, we need to establish our faith in him so that when those trials come, and we know that they will, right? Jesus has promised us that, that our faith can remain strong as well. It's not. No, it's not. It is, absolutely. Absolutely. To think about doing that, to think about these things before that happens can really set the, set the course for us. Thinking about them during that, obviously as well, surrounding ourselves with brothers who can, who can help that. Yep, it's not easy. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasurable, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So guys, just as we have experienced discipline from our, our earthly fathers, and I'm sure that we all have, and maybe as, as fathers we've dished out some of that discipline ourselves. So too, we have to experience that discipline from our heavenly father, right? But we're given encouragement as a result of that. We're told that it's because he loves us, right? Verse eight tells us that if we're left without discipline, we're not sons. And as our earthly fathers disciplined us because they thought it was best, God does it for our good, right? For our eternal good that we may share in his holiness. And so it's, it's sometimes difficult to remember that in the moment, but I, I would encourage us to consider those things as we're going through the trials of life to remind ourselves that as we're enduring that discipline, it's because he has our best interest in mind. Turn with me, guys, to Romans 9, verses 20 through 23. Probably a passage that we could spend a lot of time on but I'm going to pick it up at verse 20. So Romans 9, 20 to 23. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So guys, I'm sure that we've all, uh, we're probably all familiar with, you know, parent stories of parents losing a child or, or someone losing a spouse to disease or, or tragedy. Um, maybe that's been us, right? Maybe we've experienced that ourselves. And when that happens, it is, it is really easy to shake our fists at God and, and ask him why a, a good God, why a good God would cause that type of pain in someone's life. But I'll, I'll tell you, and I'm sure that the people who have experienced that would tell you as well, those have probably been the times where they've experienced God's goodness more than, than any other time. And I'm always encouraged to read people's testimonies to, to see how they've responded to things like that. And I, I really believe, guys, and I think the Bible reminds us that if we choose to believe in God's goodness, we're going to see examples of that as well. Um, God may be using our past pain, our past hurt to shape a testimony that he is going to use for our, for, use for his glory, right? In ways that we may never understand. Uh, write down this reference, Psalm 119.71. Psalm 119.71. It says, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. What a recognition of how to, to learn about God and learn about his care. It was good for me to be afflicted, basically saying, my pain and my trials caused me to, to grow in a more intimate relationship with you, Lord. So to the other guys on the other side of the room, to the, the ones who maybe haven't experienced that type of pain or, or loss or tragedy, I have, uh, I have some really good news for you. It's coming. It's coming at, at some point, right? Uh, John 16, 33, we read that earlier, but uh, that tells us as much. Um, so Mike, kind of what, to what you were referring to. My, my challenge to each one of us, you know, maybe especially to guys that haven't experienced that, that type of loss uh, in our lives, and, and even to the guys that, that have, my challenge to us is to understand, a, to establish a biblical understanding that what we have is not ours, right? That it, that it belongs to God and that he can take it from us at any point. Going back to the example of Abraham, I, th- I think of, of Abraham being called to sacrifice his only son, right? So he's a hundred years old. His wife is barren. The odds are stacked against him. And then they have a son. And it's this son that's promised to be, you know, the the start of generations to come. And then God asks him to sacrifice him, right? Like that, that doesn't seem right. Like, don't you think that he would have thought, come again? I don't think I'm following with what you're asking, right? But can you imagine God asking you, to give up something like that. Can you imagine struggling with, you know, with infertility for so long? Finally, you're given the son that you've wanted after so many years, and then you're asked to sacrifice him. And, and you know, not just any son, but like I said, one that was the promise of a covenant of, of many generations. But what does Abraham do instead? He understands that the things that he holds most dearly to himself, they're, they're still not his own. They're God's and he was willing to give it up and, and uh, suffer loss as a result of that. So I think of you know, my life, I think of the things that I hold dear, the things that I love. I think about my wife, my, my kids. And uh, you, know, you think about how you would react if they were given a sickness or if they were, if they were taken away from me, right? And the, that thought terrifies me, if I'm being completely honest, right? My prayer is that even if something like that happened to me, that I would still declare God's goodness and I would still allow him to use it for his glory. And so just from like an imagery perspective, guys, I, I would encourage us to consider the idea of placing our, our families, our, our jobs, our health, our careers, our goals, putting those on the altar of God, praying those back to him on a regular basis, acknowledging and, and recognizing that they do not belong to us, but they belong to him and, and he's working everything together for our good. Um, but as, as we think about that, guys, I am, I am not suggesting to us that we simply roll through life and roll through the trials and the tribulations with no emotion or with no, um, you know, working through those things, right? Far from it. 
Um, that process of trusting God I, isn't going to mean we're always going to feel good, right? There may be some guilt we feel with questioning God in the past. And, you know, we're, talked, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? There's a lot that we have to still figure out. Um, there is a testimony on the, on the MIM website, and I don't have the specific link, but if you're interested in getting it, uh, just shoot me an email, let me know. Uh, there's a testimony on there. It is, it is a modern day Job, right? This guy like had everything taken from him. He's shaking his fists at God, but how he responds to it and what, what he shares through that, it is so encouraging. And if you guys need a 20 minute, 30 minute testimony to listen to, let me know. I'd, I'd love to send that to you, but it's, it's just a great example of a, of a testimony and, and trusting God. And as much as we'd like to believe it, trusting God is not always going to remove those doubts and frustrations, right? Ben talked about that this morning, that even when Jesus was in the garden the night before his crucifixion, he was wrestling with those things as well, right? But ultimately, he, he demonstrated for us and, and he shows us the way to, to proceed and to say, you know, God, not, not my will, but, but yours be done. And he demonstrated that, that to us. So I, I, I truly believe, guys, that as, as we decide to believe that God is good, to believe that he is in control, to believe that he has our best interest, interest in mind, it's going to dramatically change our perspective and it's going to allow God's glory to be evidenced through us for others to see as well. And just a, a final encouragement to us, it may not make sense now what we're going through. It may not make sense in 10 or 20 years. Quite honestly, it may not make sense on this side of eternity, right? We may never actually get to look back and say, oh, now I understand, right? That may not happen while we're on this earth. But if we have that eternal perspective, someday we will, we will see that. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so guys, we serve a good, good God. He loves us more than we can begin to comprehend and he has a plan for each one of our lives, Lord. So my prayer, guys, my prayer for us is uh, that we would see the Lord at work in our lives, that we would choose to see his goodness at work in our lives, and that as a result, we can bring glory to him and have that eternal perspective. So thanks, guys, for listening.